Broadcasting from the historic Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville, it's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. We believe a national, publicly funded, nonprofit single payer system is the solution to the current dysfunctional system that values profit and stockholder returns over patients. The views and opinions expressed on our show are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Single Payer Radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal in your neighborhood, no problem. You can live stream us at forwardradio.org, and you can also uh, check out any of our past shows in the event you've missed them. And before I forget, a reminder that WFMP 1065 Forward Radio is having our fifth anniversary pledge drive March 27th through April the 9th. You'll have an opportunity to pick up thank you gifts when you donate during the drive. For more info, go to forwardradio.org. And uh, sorry to be a buzzkill, but in the event you didn't know, the five largest health insurers made $10.73 billion in profits in 2021, while 50% of us carry medical debt. This is not normal. It's only in the U.S. where insurance companies and drug company lobbyists write health care laws. And in Frankfurt, it's not any better. Our GOP-led state, state legislature is pushing House Bill 7 that puts new costly barriers in front of Kentuckians seeking food and medical help. When I looked last, I think it passed out of the House and has gone to the Kentucky State Senate. This is really bad news for struggling families. And what's the point? To learn more about this, you can go to Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, their website, and that's kypolicy.org kypolicy.org. They've got good info there. And then the Kentucky Poor People's Campaign is sponsoring some rallies. And you can learn about that at Kentucky at poorpeoplescampaign.org. Kentucky at poorpeoplescampaign.org. I'm going to try to get to the one uh, Monday afternoon. And this week's episode comes to us from Ricky Dunlop and the organizers of the recent National Improved Medicare for All Summit. 
want to thank Ricky and our chairperson, Kay Tillo. They helped uh, get the audio together for us that we can use. And you'll be listening to Dr. Claire Cohen, Kim Brown, and the Reverend Annie Chambers discuss racism in healthcare. All right. Thank you all so very much for joining us. Um, so Kim Brown, I did a show with you the other night. Um, Dr. Claire Cohen, fellow Pennsylvania, it is nice to meet you. And Reverend Annie Chambers, always great to talk to you um, and great to, to have you back. Um, so this is such an important conversation and um, it seems kind of odd for me to be hosting it. So I hope Mr. Cepeda uh, gets here shortly. But in any case, I mean, let's start off with just getting your thoughts on the overall idea of racism and healthcare and things you have witnessed yourself um, from actually, you know, uh, patients coming to you and, and sharing their inequities and things like that. Um, we can go around like this. Dr. Cohen, um, as a physician, would you like to start? Um, sure. So um, what I wanted to get across to people is people who are not for Medicare uh, for all will frequently say, well, uh, Medicare for all by itself won't solve the health care inequities. And I want to say to them, yeah, by itself it won't. But what I hope to bring out through this panel today is that it will certainly make a big difference in addressing those inequities directly and also it will help us in other ways to address those. Um, some of the things that uh, we uh, need to be aware of, for example, um, in, in just to make sure people are clear on this, um, this country, which is the richest country nation in the history of the world, has the among the worst health statistics of any of the so-called developed rich countries, which are about 25 to 30, maybe 35, depending on how you, what criteria you use to use those. And a lot of why we have some of the worst statistics is because of those healthcare inequities. So I'm just gonna use one, which is actually not in my field, but I wanna use that one as an example. And that is maternal mortality. So the United States, as you know, has of the, compared to the other uh, European developed countries or Western, if you want to call them, the worst maternal statistics, about 12 per every 100,000 live births as compared to three, four, five, six, seven in Canada. Well, if you look at black American women alone, they have three times as three and a half times more than the generals than white women they have for black American women, it's 42 to 43 deaths per thousand live births. Okay, so that's, that is really bad. But to give you a sense of how bad that is, I went and looked at all the uh, mortality rates for all the countries in the world. If Black America was its own country, the death rate for Black American women is so bad that our, that country, Black Amer a nation called Black America, would be 
85th. It would rank 85th out of all the countries in the world. 84 countries would be better. So that means even some undeveloped countries would have a better, uh, better rate. So how does um, health care, how does Medicare for play, play into this? Well, when we look at uh, people of color, African-Americans, first of all, they are the majority of people that are, that have no insurance are people of color. If you look at Latinx and black Americans, then if you look at underinsured people, black Americans alone, uh, for black families, 20 for, for black families, the average black family, even if they have insurance, they pay 20% of their income for premium, for insurance premium, as compared to whites who pay 11.66%. And when you look at medical debt, about one third, one third of African Americans between the age of 18 and 64 have medical serious medical debt, which is at least $250 or up to thousands of dollars. Now, um, for Latinx people, that's 21%, but that's still high. For whites, that's 17%, that's still high. But one out of every three African Americans ages 18 to 64 has serious medical debt. And it's uh, either because they're uninsured or underinsured because they have to pay. So I'll give a couple, I don't, I can be long-winded. So I'll give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. One is from my practice and one is from my real life experience. From my practice, or actually I'll give you two from my practice. One is I had a parent who wanted to see, a, uh, wanted to bring her uh, young daughter in who was suicidal and uh, depressed and suicidal. And by the way, suicidality and depression among teenagers has skyrocketed under the pandemic. She couldn't even see me, even though her daughter uh, was at risk for killing herself because she had a $3,500 deductible, a $3,500 deductible. There was no way she could afford to pay that. That, that was more than 20% of her income. Um, I had another case where a patient wanted to see me specific, specifically because I was, she wanted her daughter to see me specifically because I was a black physician. She also had a suicidal teenager and she was employed and had um, her uh, by a large employer who gave the employees two private insurance plans they could join. So for her, one plan had her black dentist and one plan had me. And what people need to understand is doctors don't pick what insurance they take. The insurance companies have what they call restricted networks, and they determine what doctors are in their networks. So she could either, she needed major dental work. She could either get her abscesses treated by the dentist and see a white have her daughter see a white psychiatrist, or she could see a white dentist and have me see her daughter. But she could, didn't have the freedom to choose both, which if she had Medicare for all, she could. She could just see whoever she wanted. The personal example I want to give has to do with breast cancer. Breast cancer runs in my family. A recent study in JAMA showed that part of the reason why uh, these mortality statistics, a major part, at least 50% of the reason why Black women have a much higher death rate in breast cancer is because of problems with insurance. Well, several years back, 
Um, I had to go for a diagnostic mammogram because I had a suspicious mass in my breast. So it happened to be just at the time when I had to pay a deductible. My deductible was close to $1,000. Now, being a doctor, I could pay it. It was an ouch. It caused me some financial, I had to do some manipulation for the month to pay that bill. But I paid it and got my diagnostic, got everything taken care of, the mask removed. I'm here today. I'm healthy. I had a cousin who uh, was about my same age. She lives on the other side of the country in the West, or she did live on the West Coast. She had the same problem. I don't know what her deductible was, but she couldn't do that diagnostic. She didn't have the money for her deductible. So she waited until she could afford. By the time she went, she had cancer throughout her body. She's, she, she passed. She died of breast cancer. If we had Medicare for all, that wouldn't have happened to her. I wouldn't have had an ouch, but she wouldn't be dead because she could have just gone to the doctor and gotten her care. So I'll leave it at that um, and give other people a chance to talk. Because, But as you can see, I have a lot to say about this issue. Okay, so I am... Um, going to, it looks like we finally have our host. Hi, Joy. I'm glad I finally got in. Whew. Thank I you all for your patience. Prepared. I apologize. <laughs> oh, my God. Whew. Okay, well, I am going to pass the mic. Thank you all so, 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 so much for joining us. This weekend has been amazing. Uh, to anyone watching, please continue to watch. We have amazing things planned all day. Um, so again, thank you so much, ladies. And Mr. Cepeda, take it away. Thanks, Joy. All right, again, thank you so much for, um, for letting me be on here with you all. I don't know what uh, happened in my in my absence while being late. I, I, it seemed I was waiting in a waiting room and couldn't get in until just a moment ago. So I, I really apologize. Did we do, uh, did Joy do introductions of, of you all? Uh, just me, Dr. Just you. All right, all right, cool. And, and, well, and everybody can tell you, I gave a, a, a big just, uh, response already. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, I'm sorry I missed it. That's the only downside of it. But I'm glad everyone else got it from you, doctor. Uh, my name is Elias uh, Cepeda. I'm very happy to be here uh, trying to moderate uh, a panel of uh, wonderful guests that we have. We're going to be discussing, of course, and as everyone else has already uh, been in involved in this discussion that's begun of racism in American healthcare, such as it is. Our, our three uh, guests are Dr. Claire Cohen, uh, and uh, I'm told. She's already been introduced. She has a, a, a just incredible CV um, and is an uh, active uh, doctor and uh, psychiatrist specifically, and, um, and, and as well as a, an activist in many, many issues, including public health. We have Kim Brown and we have Reverend Annie Chambers. Uh, Kim Brown, and again, none of these intros could do uh, these, these professionals, these, these uh, leaders justice, but I'm reading here uh, about a little bit about Kim Brown. She is, uh, like myself, a, a longtime member of the media and a journalist. Um, she described herself as a disgruntled former radio personality who grew frustrated with the erasure of leftist Black women's perspective from mainstream political discourse. Uh, and to uh, address that, she created Burn It Down with Kim Brown, which you can and should subscribe to and follow on YouTube, in order to set oppression ablaze. 
Kim Brown is also one of the co-hosts of the Remix Morning Show on Black Power Media. Thank you, Kim Brown, for being with us. Really appreciate your time and, and the perspective. And we also have, of course, Reverend Annie Chambers, who, again, talk about not being able to do someone's uh, life's work justice uh, um, uh, to, to minimize for the sake of brevity, because I'm late, and, uh, unfortunately. Reverend Annie Chambers is a lifelong activist. She's a civil rights liberation fighter. She's, of course, a, a reverend and a minister, and uh, among other things, a, an advocate for public health care and health care access. Uh, just a little blurb, um, at least from where I'm coming uh, uh, at this from, I don't think any of our viewers would be surprised to learn that racism is systemic uh, here in the United States and, of course, globally. But here in the United States, it certainly uh, affects the way wealth and housing and educational opportunities and access to health care are distributed, leading to, among other things, awful health outcome disparities uh, uh, from, from white Americans to people of color, uh, specifically um, uh, black Americans. Just horrible, horrible uh, outcomes. Like every seven minutes, I, I've read a, a black person in the United States dies prematurely um, and, and even even worse than the, in a sense, I feel, or even at least more surprising to many uh, who even accept race, systemic racism as a reality, is that some of these these awful healthcare outcomes, these disparities in healthcare outcomes between white and black, let's say, it it has to do more with it has to do more than with class and and the way that racism. Uh, systemically or systematically affects the way uh, income is is distributed in America. That, of course, has some huge negative ramifications, and we can discuss that. But also, when we studies show that when we account for things like class and income and education levels and comorbidities, Black people in the United States, when they are in front of the same doctor and when they have the same educational background, the same of attainment, the same income. Uh, and in otherwise, but for race, the same class strata as their their white colleagues or white counterparts in that doctor's office with access to the exact same health care. They get different and worse treatment for just about everything from cardiac care to dialysis to consideration for transplants to consideration for pain medication. So it's not just class and economic status that affects uh, health come outcomes. It's not just the way that systemic racism uh, data shows us uh, affects the way that income is distributed and the way that people are divided into class. But black Americans, just when they're in front of, of, of largely white doctors, just get received different and worse care. Um, you know, there's, there's surveys out there of, of uh, current medical doctors in the United States that really show a, a terrifying, like 18th century level uh, of racist ideas pervading their thoughts about uh, a black folk having uh, higher levels of pain tolerance. And, and it really puts into stark relief the things we see like um, uh, uh, black mothers having the same type of mortality rates that they did in, uh, in, in like the late 19th century. So we're gonna talk about racism in, in American healthcare today with these, these, these excellent panelists that we're lucky uh, to have here. And we're gonna look at it in, in hopefully uh, uh, multiple ways and multiple facets. I wanted to uh, jump in first with a question that everyone can certainly answer if it speaks to them, but I wanted to direct it first to Reverend uh, Chambers. 
Reverend Chambers, I've I've read and I've seen interviews with you in the past. I know you've you've had the uh, you've had you've had healthcare experiences not just here in the United States as an American, but you've also had uh, healthcare experiences, including uh, some some scary situations in other countries in countries that had some form of universal healthcare namely Cuba, where you spent a lot of time. I was wondering, Reverend Chambers, if, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about and contrasting your, your experiences um, with healthcare in America versus in a place like Cuba that has, has long had universal, some form of universal healthcare. Universal. Yes. Um, as I've, I've always had a congenital heart you all my life I, they tell me even from a child but it uh as i grew older it, it got worse and i've always been out in this struggle and i can uh relate to universal health care um when i was in cuba one time i had um fluctuations of my heart and um I had no problem. They, I mean, they got me to the hospital, they got me to the doctors, and they took care of it. And then they were the ones who told me what was really wrong with me because I'd been to doctors before and nobody really told me what was wrong. Um, but um, in Cuba, the doctors were, I got excellent health care from head to feet. I also have feet problems. and they they even helped me you know they helped me with that and i was amazed that you know you didn't have to have insurance you didn't have to have a co-payment you didn't have all these problems that that we have here in our country in america rather let me say that um the doctors were courteous the the people the, the staff the nurses and everybody treated me with respect and gave me a real good treatment um they sent me home with um some medicine that i couldn't get in america for many 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 years now i'm talking about this happened when i uh, went to cuba and had this attack i was like 33 years old I'm now 80 years old. I got sick here. Um, I've had two heart attacks in my life. And um, I, I had a heart attack here and all they ever gave me was nitroglycerin and things like that. They didn't give me any. Um, I found out this last time when I had my heart, Hard back. Um, they gave me the medicine that they were. They gave me. Oh God, I'm trying to think of how old the child was that I had, but I know that I was at that time 32 years old. I'm finally getting the medicine that the doctors in Cuba gave me. Now you know, and and it it, it, it helps me. I take it every day in trust though. Now even now I have a hard time because at first my insurance didn't want to pay for it. 
and then you know i had a doctor that um continue to fight for me to get it so i do get the medicine now but not only just uh with my heart you know covid has been terrible in this country and i have seen so many old people die literally die because they couldn't get treatment my own husband went to the hospital and he's a diabetic he had covid and pneumonia and they turned him out in the street they literally turned him out in the street and some people he fell out and some homeless people because they know me and know the work that me and him do you know they brought him home to me and then i uh made several calls and uh he went back to this hospital and again they sent him home with medicine like you would have a cold okay that's what they gave him and so he was very very ill taking care of him meant that i got covid and i was very very sick and um with my age and already the, you know the heart the heart condition i was in pretty bad shape well um my um one of my um godsons took me and and found out about uh corona anna corona antibiotics they were not making it available to people they had it stuck away and my husband and i were the only two black people getting a treatment when we got there to get that treatment um we were the only poor people and somebody even asked me who do i work for what senator or who do i work for you know it was like what you doing here and we got the treatment like on a thursday that sunday i was up washing clothes so they did not make that available and then i you know the word got around i we were talking telling everybody about it all of a sudden it closed down there were no more treatments they so a lot of people died and especially if you was black homeless and poor you literally a lot of people died from covid and this new thing that they got out now you know they telling people you can get the shots but they make it so hard for you to get your treatments and they want to say it's free but you you go there all they say well we're going to give you the test and you you literally got the you know you got the virus so you don't you know my thing is you can test them but at least start a treat them they test them and send you home and say you uh, call back in 3 or 4 days we will let you know whether you got you know covid or whatever this other stuff is and by that time the person is very ill and incoherent and can't even do anything and besides that you know that even the ambulance would pick up people with covid and healthcare workers i had to fuss with the with the lady with the emergency ambulance i had to call downtown and everywhere for them to take my husband out my house to carry him back to the hospital that's how sick he was and that's how sick i've seen him i lost five family members i lost five p 
people in my family four of my put diapers on because of COVID, because they wouldn't treat them. Or they tell them, you got, okay, you got COVID, but you take this and go home. And they, uh, my grandson, he died in his sleep. Oh my God. He died. He went home, laid down like they told him, and he literally died. My son-in-law, who worked every day for um, the RIS, and he went home with the medication, and he died. But they got him to the hospital, but he never came back out. You know, so I've lost people that's very close to me. I lost his brother. I lost a niece. I lost a granddaughter to COVID. The same way they, you know, they just, if she couldn't get any treatment. And by the time she went to get the treatment, she, the COVID had just consumed the whole body. So right now in America, if, you know, my fight is every day for universal health care, health care for all, we have to, and I talk to four people, I say, we the ones who have to be on the front line of fighting this because if we don't, we will literally die. And COVID showed, I mean, you, it has showed it this time. I have never seen people die. It's like the, it was a plague for us. It was like a plague. Thank you for sharing these, you know, experiences awful as, as, as they are, Reverend. I, I mean, the United States certainly has a larger proportion uh, or disproportionate amount of COVID deaths, um, you know, of global COVID deaths uh, in relation to like our percentage of global population. And I know for a fact, I don't know how it all breaks down, but I know for a fact both uh, Latin populations and black populations, and certainly they intersect, right? But like um, they have, we have a higher percentage of COVID deaths in the United States um, or a higher percentage of it than, than, our, than our percentage of the total population. So that's certainly, this, this pandemic is, 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 is really revealing existing disparities and, and people are dying disproportionate to their to their to their place or at least their numbers in society and that's this is devastating because we're feeling in real time and and uh and and you know two years in almost two years in despite over a million people probably dying here in the u.s and the in disproportionately people of color and and uh, and also uh, people of lower income we don't seem any closer to having at least the the leaders in in, in government uh saying that we should join the, the 21st century and the rest of the of the civilized world and having universal health care and uh, despite people of all party affiliations and ideologies uh being in favor of it it's, it's super disconcerting but to go to kim kim brown kim as as a as a as a media member what are some of the what are some of the most disturbing or, um, or or frustrating distortions that you see surrounding um, healthcare and 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 the health of of, of uh, Americans of color and Black Americans um, in the conventional narrative, in the way that in, in 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 the mainstream discourse, the way things like healthcare disparities are discussed in in uh, in mainstream discourse? What are some of the things that that you find most frustrating or 
you know, most falls? Well, I, I mean, first, I'm, I'm extremely moved by what, what Reverend Chambers shared with us regarding all of her experiences with COVID and, and the people that she lost because of that. And COVID, as she said, you know, the pandemic was like the plague for us, for Black and Brown people specifically. It was experienced unevenly. And I think that's part of the reason why there is such a haste to reopen this country, to quote unquote, get back to normal. The, the, the lifting of the indoor masking mandates across the country to me is horrifying uh, because the United States has not handled the pandemic well. As you said, Elias, that um, most of the people of the deaths have been black and brown folks. And those who are going to be the ones continuing to die or to perhaps suffer long-term COVID as a result of this pandemic. As new variants and strains and potential surges come about, the people who are on the front lines, especially so-called essential workers, who again, overwhelmingly happen to be black and brown, our food service workers, our healthcare workers, are people who literally kept this country going throughout the pandemic. Uh, those people were the ones sacrificed the most, and those are the ones that will continue to be sacrificed. And to me, that is part of the story that I don't think that mainstream media hammers home enough, and nor do I have them uh, any, any expectation uh, of them to do that because mainstream media outlets are corporate owned outlets. They are conglomerates. So they have the interest of the capital. So capitalism has determined that the pandemic is done uh, and the rest of us just sort of need to get on with it. Uh, but that is harmful specifically to black and brown communities because as mentioned before, we are the ones most likely to be uninsured. We are the ones with less access to healthcare in the first place. And uh, I mean, just the, the, the anecdotal stories about people being turned away for care, not being believed. And a lot of these discrepancies and indifference to black and brown lives obviously predates the pandemic, but the pandemic as as uh, Reverend Chambers just said, just just highlighted it and made it, uh, if it was ever any doubt that black and brown people receive different levels of healthcare than white folks in America, the pandemic has clearly shown us that that is uh, definitely the case. And the priorities given uh, to saving white lives, to saving uh, white middle-class lives and disregarding poor black and brown lives. Um, to me, that is something that the media, I, again, they don't hammer at home and I don't expect them to hammer at home because it's not in their interest to do so. And it's not in the interest of, of the, wide, uh, the widespread capital at large. But even still, when we look even pre-pandemic at the way that black people experience, for example, cancer deaths, uh, or as Dr. Cohen referenced, black maternal deaths and black infant mortality, it is very clear that the United States capitalist healthcare system wants black people to die, wants black and brown people to die premature deaths. I, it, it feels as though that since the end of chattel slavery, you know, when labor and and resources and our lives of African people on this continent were sacrificed in order to create the wealth of this country, then our lives 
were even more expendable than they were before, right? Because now <laughs> uh, we, we may not have the same value to the system. Um, so it's okay to do experiments on us. It's okay to disregard our symptoms when we do try to seek help uh, for, for health problems. Um, it, it, it's okay to not offer black and brown people the same levels of care comparable to white Americans. Um, so I think that beyond me media outlets bringing these stories to the public, because I think, I think the public is pretty well aware at the chasm of discrepancies between um, black folks and white folks in the healthcare system. And then even more so when we extrapolate uh, for those who are insured versus uninsured. I mean, the Medicare for all, part of the reason I think that it has not yet happened is because White America does not want <laughs> does not want to pay for Black folks' health care. Period. Point blank. There, I said it. You know what I'm saying? Like that. I think racism underpins a lot of why Medicare for all doesn't go very very far because the larger white collective understands that it is poor Black and Brown people who are most likely not to have health insurance, and what that's not something that they care for their money to go towards. Uh, so, so absolutely racism underpins all of this. And, and the media, usually the mainstream outlets, independent outlets do a much better job. But mainstream outlets, I think intentionally do 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 the devil's work in in omitting a lot of context. But I, I don't have a problem yeah. hosting. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kim, I, I um while we're waiting, if you don't if he doesn't mind, I'll sure. respond to you. I um by the way, Kim, I watched you when you were on the real news. Oh and, uh, and I've watched Although not all the time, I've watched Burn It Down with Kim Brown often. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. So I was excited to be on a panel with you. That's so. But I, I wanted to respond to some of what you were saying because as you were talking, um, not a, and and I realized all of my I didn't get fully introduced. So I'm a member of Physicians for National Health Program, which by the way, their current pres president is a retired black internist, and. Um, and I'm also a member of a group called National Single Payer. I'm on the committee uh, for Medicare for All for DSA. I'm, I'm very involved and in, locally I'm very involved. And um, uh, as you said, it's it's more than, it's not just um, the issue of Medicare for All. There's, uh, well, I'll stop talking now that you're back on. I was just going to jump in. My um, next question was going to be for you, Dr. Cohen, as well. I don't know. I was able to hear and see you all, thankfully for okay. me. But it, sorry, it looks like I disappeared from from yeah. the chat there. And thank you, Kim, for that really thoughtful um, response, Dr. Cohen. I, I, you know, and you can take this in any direction. You can you can go back to whatever you were thinking of saying. One thing that I wanted to ask um, you about. I mean, so so race isn't biological but racism certainly we know has has physiological effects when people experience even perceive that they're experiencing uh discrimination um the uh, from what i read the you know the science tells us that has direct uh influence on on their health on their mental health and 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 all sorts of other things i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that from your experiences what you've seen of of, of how racism actually um, can have negative health uh, consequences for individual patients uh, of, of yours, of ones you've seen, specifically maybe mental health uh, and the health, mental health capacity. Okay, so uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, it's, it's, so there's a number of ways through which racism can, 
and I don't think we know all the ways can affect health. So first of all, um, growing up in a racist society, we now know that children, for example, um, there's this concept called adverse childhood experiences. And we now know that the experiences that children have growing up when they're young have a profound and prolonged impact on their physical and mental health. So for example, children who have parents who die or effectively die because they're imprisoned or just not there um, are much more prone, even if they have no ge genetic predisposition to depression and anxiety when they grow up, okay? Well, one in five black children loses a parent when they're a child. There's a disproportionate amount of loss of black parents, either through death, through, viol from, through violence, either community or domestic, or parents that go to jail and never come back. So right there, we know that that um, you can you can see that um, um, the black children are set up to have depression and anxiety. Another thing that we know, um, uh, di not diabetes, hypertension. So everybody says hypertension and diabetes are genetic, and they are to some degree. But one fact that doesn't get discussed for hypertension is that there's not um, Africans, people from Africa are not at higher, are not at higher predisposition to get hypertension. It's black Americans or people who move or people who are second generation Africans who come here, who become more predisposed to hypertension. So there's something in our experience. Well, some recent studies have shown in the last 20, 30 years that if you have two or more adverse childhood experience and, and, and a significant proportion of black children do, that changes your body, physiologically changes your body to make you more predisposed to your blood pressure going up and going up sooner as you get older. And we know that um, racism in it of itself is an adverse childhood experience, but many of the experiences black children go through, the school to prison pipeline, um, having parents that are overworked, having parents in jail, community violence. We could go on and on and on, many of the experiences. So black children are, have a much higher incidence of being uh, exposed to adverse childhood experiences, meaning that it sets their body up to be more likely to have hypertension. Diabetes, even though it is, it's, it's uh, genetic and definitely there's a higher incidence in Africa, like many genetic disorders, you need something in the environment for it to happen. Mm -hmm. so, in Africa, you rarely see type 2 diabetes in people who eat a traditional African diet because it's not enough to have the genes for, for type 2 diabetes. You have to have the diet that also. They go together, the genes plus the diet that's high in sugar and simple carbohydrates. Well, the traditional African diet isn't. So many Africans who come over here all of a sudden discover they have type 2 diabetes, because the typical American diet is very, in fact, it's the amount of sugars is toxic. Okay, that's a discussion for another day. And on top of that, all the, the high um, uh, carb, simple carbohydrates. They did an interesting study here at the University of Pittsburgh not too long ago, where they took African students, and they took African Americans in the Pittsburgh area, and they had them switch diets 
for a couple of months. The mm -hmm. Africans ate typical American diet. The Americans ate typical African diet. In that couple of months, the, the health of the African-Americans got noticeably improved and the health of the Africans noticeably deteriorated. Um, so, um, so I hope that answers some of your some of your questions. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's some other, I, I could go on and on. I could tell you when to move on, but there's some other uh, troubling things when, when somebody was talking about how doctors treat patients mm. and experience in the patient-doctor relationship. Actually, yeah, I would I would love for you to actually I wanted to follow up on something that I, I think might touch on that and, and take it. I know Reverend Chambers was talking about how she was she felt she treated well and courteously uh, with courtesy in, in Cuba. And then, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Reverend, of course, uh, um, the, that type of um, that same level of respect and uh, and, and courteousness was not extended. In, in some of the things you were talking about most recently, like with your husband and you being sick, um, and I've I've read us I've read about uh, um, some studies that were done. I think it was specifically in Michigan, and it was it was around COVID nineteen, and it, they took like majority black uh, population zip codes, and then ones with mixed more mixed uh, demographics uh, racially and ethnically, and it was around it was holding people around what they called uh, community stress around COVID-19. And it was reported, community stress was reported as being felt much higher in, in the study in majority black zip codes, but not around the same things. Like in, in the black zip codes, <laughs> folks were responding, uh, community stress, uh, the pandemic, specifically around things like uh, housing and food insecurity, where in zip codes uh, uh, with populations with more uh, uh, white folks, they were talking about things like oh feeling isolated or arguing with family and this kind of makes me think about think about like the traditional like uh, hierarchy of needs and and it makes me wonder in in uh, about your experience as a psychiatrist and 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 at all with with not only just the way with um generally with the way doctors maybe interact with patients in bedside manner but decolonizing healthcare and maybe specifically decolonizing uh, mental health care or psychotherapy and, and if you had any thoughts about that um, and, and any concerns about that in, in your work and your practice. Okay, so there are, there are a number of things. I want to tie this, try to tie this in more with why we need Medicare for all. So um, there, there are um, even doctors who think they're liberal studies show there's a troubling, there's some trouble, troubling statistics in both psychiatry and in medicine at large that haven't changed. Maybe I'll stick with psychiatry. So when a psychiatric patient who is black comes in to see us to a mental health facility, um, they're more like with, with what's called psychotic symptoms, hearing voices and seeing things, they're more likely to be diagnosed as schizophrenic than having something like bipolar disorder. Both are disorders that can cause people to hallucinate, okay? Bipolar disorder, if well-treated, there are a lot of famous people in history. Thelonious Monk, uh, I could go on and on. Um, that's my favorite one, that's why I always bring it <laughs> um, Who have bipolar. Bipolar by itself is not, if, if managed well and treated well, does not have to be debilitating. In fact, there are a lot of very brilliant and very creative people who have had that disorder, okay? On the other hand, Schizophrenia tends to be a more debilitating disorder before medications. The reason why it was called dementia precox is after 20, 30, 40 years of having 
schizophrenia, people did tend to have to have dementia, did tend to degenerate. Okay, that doesn't happen with the. There's a lot of problems with the medications, but one of the things they seem to stop that process of of, of mental deterioration. So you much rather have a diagnosis of bipolar than than schizophrenia because people are going to treat you differently, including the mental health professional. They're they're going to assume that you're more able to get back on your feet with the right treatment. Yet black people are more much more likely to get diagnosis of schizophrenia and to have um, to have um, uh, bipolar missed. Also, people uh, who have PTSD may appear to have psychotic symptoms. And oftentimes I find that people often miss, it doesn't get talked about as much in the literature, but in my practice, I notice that people often, you know, when a black kid comes in, when kids have been traumatized, they, kids who have been traumatized show behavioral disturbance as well as emotional disturbance, okay? So a kid who's been physically abused is likely to be, it's called hypervigilant and very reactive and very ready to fight. They're very ready to defend themselves. And you see lots of kids who get end up being put in the criminal justice system because people aren't aware that this kid is so reactive because they've been, uh, they've been abused and they're reacting as if they have to defend themselves, okay? And, and that doesn't get thought about. Um, oftentimes when, um, for another example, uh, mental health wise is as far as we can tell, uh, autism, it's a autistic spectrum disorder, is a disorder which is that it's just as calm. It has the same statistical prep, uh, prevalence and incidence in all races and all groups. And by the way, so does schizophrenia. But um, yet, kids with autism are much more like who are black or Latinx are much more likely to be missed. There's been a couple of good studies, one out of the university, than kids who are white and kids who are black and Latinx who have autism are much more likely to be diagnosed at an older age than kids who are white. And that's very significant because the best chance you have of doing well if you have autism is to be picked up very early and get intensive treatment, intensive intervention very early. So just the fact that there's that four to five, six year difference. And when black kids and Latinx kids get picked up as having autism means that they are gonna have a worse prognosis. Um, and why is that? Because oftentimes when kids have psychiatric problems, they're quote, bad, they're kicking, they're spitting, they're aggressive, they're showing a mm -hmm. lot of behaviors. And too often when people see a black kid who's acting like that, they don't go beyond bad kid needs to go to jail. Whereas with white kids, people are more likely to think, kids struggling, kid having a problem, what can we do to get them worked out, figure out what's going on and get them help? It gets compounded where Medicare for All comes in because oftentimes, disproportionately, um, black people are low income, disproportionately low income. And oftentimes people who are low income are on um, Medicaid, which a lot of people don't realize nowadays, nowadays is privatized in all but two states. It's run by private insurance companies. They manage it. And a lot of times they cut into things like how much time doctors can spend with patients. I've seen doctors that do 15 minute psychiatric evaluations 
first of all, it's, it's very touchy. It's very often for people, very humiliating. It's stigmatizing to come and talk about mental health problems for yourself or for your children. People need time to connect, to feel comfortable, to trust. You aren't going to do that in 15 minutes. You don't know how many patients, times I've had patients that have come to me because I get, I sometimes, I insist that I'm going to spend time with my patients. I don't, I don't care what the system says. You don't know how many times patients have come to me and I found out they didn't follow the, the recommendations. They didn't do the care. They didn't tell the doctor important things they needed to know about them to even treat them appropriately. And the thing I hear over and over again from my black patients, well, I didn't trust this guy. I didn't know who they were. And it wasn't just because they were white, but they only spent 10 minutes with me. I didn't feel comfortable talking about this, but why did they only spend 10 minutes or 15 minutes? Because the insurance is pushing doctors to send those patients through like widgets on a conveyor belt because the private insurance has to make its money, its profit, and they can't make it if you're sitting there spending time talking to patients, making a relationship, getting to know them. It needs those patients to go through fast, fast, fast. Get We want as volume. We got to see as many as we can see. And they don't really care if you're really getting, having, uh, connecting with the patients. To this day, every study shows that the most important factor in patient healing to this day is not how much medicine you have, not how highfalutin your, your technology is. It's the doctor-patient relationship. And if you don't have the time to spend to make a connection with your patient and to have your patient develop trust in you, and for you to get to know your patient, if you're not the same culture or whatever, it's you're not going to have a good doctor-patient relationship, and that, in and of itself, affects patient care. So, well, thank you, Reverend Chambers. You've you've organized a lot on on this issue of of, of privatization of Medicaid and and its negative impact on patients, right? Yes, because see. Um, Medicare for all, healthcare for all means that a lot of the other problems we have in society uh, balance right on this. Because as the doctor have said, I've listened to her describe several young people I know. I've worked with in the prison system with young people. I've worked with young people on the street and I've worked with people in general. Um, and you know the problems, but then when, when, you know, the problem is you don't have the, first of all, for black people, healthcare, um, special mental healthcare is a stigmatism. They don't, you, nobody wants to say they child, I have a problem. Um, I'm the mother of 25 children biologically. And I had some children that just, you know, it just seemed like no matter what was done, they could not learn. They could, you know, they weren't um, writing, reading or anything. And the schools were constantly passing these people. So I had to say, stop, what, something is wrong. And, um, I went to the school, talked to them. They said, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to put them in a special class. But see, it wasn't working. That's, that special classes was not working for my children. So I had to fight the school system. 
then a um, diagnosis was done by a mental health over at Kennedy Craig that my children were dyslexic. And nobody took the time. And in Baltimore City at that time, they had no way to even deal with dyslexic children or dyslexic people. Um, but John Hopkins had a program. And so with me fighting, because they offered to, they, they threatened to take my children from me. They threatened to put us in jail, but we kept on fighting. We would get out. I would not let them go to school. I'd take all of my children and go out in front of the school board and demonstrate all day long. And then I had other people that did come and join me, like my priests and some of the nuns and some of the other people. So when it got in court, the judge, uh, I said to the judge, my children have a right to education. And, and the school board uh, defense was, well, we, we're doing the best we can. But the doctors at John Hopkins and, and the, you know, it's the psychiatrist and the psychologist had already said what was wrong with my children. They were dyslexic. And so, you know, there were no teachers for them in the public school system. So then I had to sue the school system. But my children were able to go to the counties where there was no black children in this school where they sent them. None where they sent them, but they would leave from Baltimore City every day and go to the county to go to school in this private school, it was a private school, so that they could learn. And when they asked, they actually, um, the school board said, well, we gonna get the money from to, it. I said, I don't care. They're entitled to our education. I really didn't care. I wanted my children. But then I found out myself that I was a dyslexic person. And so I was trained right along with my children because they were, uh, one of my daughters even tell the day she reads upside down. She she can read it upside down. She writes upside down. She turn it around and hand it to you, and you can read it. Uh, they, you know, I had children that uh, start from, you know, still reading from, you know, right to left. They they just mix up, and then their words would, you know, things would jumble up. They would explain to me what they were seeing. So all of these things, and I'm saying to explain this. Is why we talking about all the crime and all the stuff that we have in our system now. It's because of lack of healthcare. It's a lack of healthcare. You know, the children getting lead in their water. Uh, those, all of that affects these young people and affects people that grow up to be adults and they still have these problems. So, if we had better healthcare, if we had healthcare for all and they could come and get the treatments, they, the health care that they need, we would even cut down the crime. For more info, go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. Happy birthday, Beth.